Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hello there. This episode has taken a long time to put together. The amount of research has been genuinely immense, and cramming everything together into one episode has been one of my greatest challenges. I hope it's worth the wait. This is certainly one of the most important topics to cover. The class system was fundamental to the Victorians. It was the crucial aspect of a person and how they were judged. Not just money, not just intelligence, not just race. A person's class was the first thing other Victorians wanted to know about someone. Preferably, at first glance, from a look at the person's clothes and behaviour. Yet our story is really one of change. The Victorian era was an era of fast social change, of dynamic class tension, of social advancement and radical departure from old customs. Class is a staggeringly complicated concept, almost instinctively understood by Victorians, but much harder for us. It wasn't just about wealth or what school someone went to or their job. It was about the whole package of work, parentage, location, behaviour, dress, taste and speech. It was hierarchical in a way that few non-British people will ever truly understand. But looking back on it, we struggle because we read our history in the light of Karl Marx, E.P. Thompson, Michael Foucault and Patrick Joyce, plus the inevitable television imaginings. Obviously, Marx wanted to emphasise class conflict and what he saw as the inevitable communist revolution. Many other historians write in opposition to him or to support him. Class becomes a handy label for bird's eye views or to push ideology. This in turn often leads to class viewed only through the struggle for workers' rights or the hobbies and squabbles of the aristocracy and the insecurity of the middle class self-help manual. At the most basic, a class system is just a way of identifying the groups in a society and how they relate to each other. According to Dr. Anthony Mindstead, studies show that class, even today, is a fundamental part of identity in the United Kingdom. Quote, Results show that respondents attached high importance to identities that are indicative of their social class, income, education and professional, and at least as much importance as they gave to identities more commonly studied by psychologists, such as ethnicity, nationality or gender. End quote. He also stated that for Karl Marx, class was quote, defined objectively in terms of one's relationship to the means of production. You either have ownership of the means of production, in which case you belong to the bourgeoisie, or you sell your labour, in which case you belong to the proletariat. And there is clear qualitative difference between the two classes. End quote. This is a narrow and problematic definition, especially as the Victorian era saw the rise of the working professional who owned shares and collected rent but also sold their own professional services. It is also a rather oversimplistic presentation of Marx's analysis of Victorian society. Famous historian H.P. Thompson also looked at a wider definition of class, but one still rooted in class conflict as well as class hierarchy. He said class was the creation of agency. It wasn't a formal structure, but instead something that happens in human relations to each other. He also acknowledged how hard it was to define, quote, The finish meshed sociological net cannot give us a pure specimen of class any more than it can give us one of deference or of love, quote. Others took an even wider approach. Historian Patrick Joyce turned to postmodernism, where class and society are imagined concepts that only have meaning in the texts in which they are written about. He argues that we have only constructed the meaning of society and class. Joyce goes a lot further into postmodernism. The debate, whilst important, is a raging academic war. 
on the fundamental status of knowledge itself. Much as I love philosophy, I'm not getting into the is knowledge real and can it ever be true debate. Joyce did say that by leaving the text-based narrow definitions behind, we can acknowledge much of what we say about class is a rigid label we are creating for ourselves to give us false certainty. We should recognise that class is a label we are applying for the study of a society. And while some people at the time might also have used it, we should take account of status, social station, wealth, and employment or profession. Where does that leave us? Well, the simple definition of class is the way in which people are grouped in a society and how they relate to each other within it and across its borders. As history fans, we can make that label as broad or as narrow or as granular as we need to help us understand people. We can't get inside their heads, so there are always little elements of us projecting onto people, but we can get pretty damn close sometimes. The Victorians themselves certainly felt there was a class system. Victorians not only identified themselves by class, but treated each other differently because of it. The higher the individual's position in the class system, the better they were typically treated. The reverse was also true. This was not a meritocratic or egalitarian society, and it didn't want to be. The terms they used might be slightly different. Often words like nobility, gentleman, respectable, station, rank, mob, masses, yeoman, Anglo-Saxon, and so on might be used and abused, and we can work on putting those into the more convenient general labels. The idea there was no class system at all is clearly ridiculous. Just by the fact that you had a queen, having a monarch is a clear marker of a highly rigid class system of some kind, since the top of the pyramid is the monarchy. Those lengthy etiquette manuals wouldn't have been needed either if there wasn't an elaborate way of relating to each other on a class or hierarchy basis. If you were a Victorian, you knew your station in the world. You made damn sure everyone else knew it too, and that everyone else acted according to their station and yours. Deference was considered a good character trait, a bad one. Snobbery was both an entitlement and, to a degree, a virtue. For the aristocracy, privilege was a right, not a privilege. If you were in the aristocracy, you absolutely would be superior and condescending about it, otherwise the point. If you were in the middle class, you made sure other people knew that you were respectable. If you were in the working class, you took pride in your job, status, and those of your family. Being able to put food on the table was the great boast of the working man. If you were amongst the destitute and poor, life hammered it home to you every day. What's more, in the run-up to the 1830s and 1840s, a lot more people had been added to the nobility. This increase in numbers meant more nobles demanded to be moved up the scale of the nobility, and so they became more concerned about rank and privilege. At the very top was the reigning monarch. She exercised the official power of the crown, and her office was referred to as the crown or the queen by people acting on behalf. There was no debate about this. As I've mentioned in previous shows on Victoria, the Victorians considered the crown as the top social rank. To suggest otherwise was dangerous radicalism, or even revolutionary republicanism of the French style, or worse, somewhat American. She was addressed as Your Majesty by everyone. Aristocrats would be allowed to switch to a less formal mum once the first formality was done. The exception was the man holding the rank below Queen. Just beneath the Queen was theoretically Albert, the Prince Consort. He was not granted the title of King since the Victorians expected kings to outrank queens and no one was going to give a German prince the English throne. In practice, Albert hated to defer to anyone 
and had to fight a running battle with the British establishment to get respect. He would eventually get the formal title of Prince Consort and was regarded by some politicians as effectively the king. He referred to Victoria either as Your Majesty, Victoria, or Beloved Wife and various other endearments, or you, with finality, when he was enraged. The relationship was passionate, loving, and sometimes stormy, but never as stylized as some of the older court systems like the Habsburgs or the Chinese imperial dynasties. Beneath the Queen and the Prince Consort were the Dukes. These were typically royal dukes, but you also got regular dukes. Duke was a title, not connected to territory. In practice, most dukes did have territory, but a dukedom didn't automatically come with the title of duke. There was one particular dukedom that comes with the duchy. That is the Duchy of Lancaster. It is the richest dukedom in the kingdom, and to make things even more messy, the title is held by the monarch. So, Queen Elizabeth II is also the Duke of Lancaster, and this has been a crown title since Henry V in the 1400s. It brings colossal wealth with it. This duchy is one of the foundation stones of the power of the British monarchy. Think of it like letting someone own California and giving them a slice of every buck of profit someone in the state makes on everything. Suddenly, that makes the monarch incredibly powerful compared to all the levels of title below. I suppose you are wondering how on earth previous kings managed to go bankrupt if they had access to this. Well, the answer is that they weren't making as much profit from the duchy as today, and some of them spent sums of money that defy easy description. Remember when we discussed the Prince Regent ages ago, spending nearly the cost of a Royal Navy frigate on his daughter's wedding? Victoria actually came to the throne with serious money worries. Luckily, she wasn't that overindulgent, and she and Albert were pretty good financial planners. As the wealth of empire flowed into Britain, and the Queen was showered with gifts, or heaped with loot, like the Corrie-Nor, she became hugely rich. The crown is also head of the Church of England, and by the end of Victoria's reign, she was formerly the Empress of India. So her full titles were Her Majesty Queen Victoria, by the grace of God, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, Queen, Defender of the Faith, Empress of India, Honours, Founder and Sovereign of the Order of the Star of India, Founder and Sovereign of the Royal Order of Victoria and Albert, Founder and Sovereign of the Order of the Crown of India, Founder and Sovereign of the Distinguished Service Order, Founder and Sovereign of the Royal Victorian Order. No one else came to close to that level on the social scale. There was nothing that outranked Queen. Well, until the heart-stopping moment, her daughter married the heir to the German Empire and would become an empress. In no world was Queen Victoria going to let her daughter outrank her. So she pressed Parliament to have herself styled Empress of India, which is why it got tacked on there. So in a way, that means even the Queen was a social climber. Underneath this was the vast and complicated British class system, which included the class systems of England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland. None of the classes or behaviours were static. There were a lot of different ways Victorian class can be defined. Broadly speaking, I like those historians using higher levels of division. So for today, I will divide it into royalty, aristocracy, upper class, including the gentry, the upper middle class, the lower middle class, also known as the middling sort, the upper working class, the lower working class, the unemployed poor, the criminal, and the foreigner. Obviously, we won't be going through every single one of those in huge detail, as you will never remember it, and I will need six episodes. Roughly speaking, the bulk of the population belonged to the working class, and this was about 75-80% to 80% of the population in the 1840s. There was a growing middle class, frequently from trades or professions. This was 
only around 20% of the population, at most, maybe. Then there was the upper class, only about 5% of the population, perhaps several thousand people were part of this section of the gentry, and they were inevitably landowners and magistrates. The aristocracy had around 400 to 500 aristocrats, the peerage, those dukes, earls and viscounts. Naturally, they ruled the House of Lords and formed an oligarchy with the gentry. Then there was the small but growing royal family and Queen V herself. The aristocracy looked across the world and felt they should be recreating the English hierarchy everywhere. As David Canadine points out in his book, Ornamentalism, quote, some immigrants leaving Britain wanted to re-establish the domestic social hierarchy they regretted they were leaving behind and set out to improve their own place within it. Others on arrival wanted to distance themselves from fellow travellers whom they considered in every sense beneath them. Hence the verdict of Sir Henry Huntley, governor of Prince Edward Island, who claimed that an aristocratic instinct prevailed among the people of all of the provinces of Canada. Hence these words of Sir Roger Thierry, who in the 1860s noted that the various observances of precedents in New South Wales, as in most colonial societies, are attended to with great, sometimes ludicrous precision. Social distinction is everywhere desired, agreed the Sydney Morning Herald. All these colonial settlers determined to replicate what they believed to be the British social order and shared what Geoffrey Bolton has called an Anglican and hierarchical view of society, which in its ideal form was one of village communities in which obedient and industrious tenants enjoyed the public libraries and mechanics institutes, the ploughing matches and hospitable sporting events organised and controlled by the landed gentry, end quote. Well, they do say that travel narrows the mind and you'd be hard-pressed to find anything much more minded. Times were changing, though, in the early Victorian era. The aristocracy, to the shock of many, found themselves increasingly professionalising their estates. Large landowners began consolidating accounts from their various estates and running them through offices in London. Parliamentarians complained they were increasingly busy compared to their aristocratic absentee predecessors. Knowing poetry and building character were not enough for the modern gentleman. Aristocrats of the 1830s and 1840s were expected to be interested in science, business, economics, and especially farming techniques. They found themselves baffled by the wave of moralising by their younger relatives. The old, relaxed, anything-goes aristocrats found their daughters lectured them on drink and ethics. Many were horrified. As early as 1827, many were noticing a rise of evangelical religion and hints of the religious mania that were a core part of Victorian culture. The elderly, kind John Bly, 4th Earl of Darnley, had invited his friend, Mrs. Sarah Siddons, to entertain some of the guests at his party with some of her noted Shakespearean recitals. Sarah Sidden had played Lady Macbeth between 1779 and 1819 and was regarded as the definitive actress in the role, far overshadowing her Victorian successors to the point where any Victorian actress was given a kicking in the press for not living up to Siddons genius. The Earl's daughter-in-law, Emma Parnell, stormed out of the party, denouncing the wickedness of such theatricals and the forwardness of a woman acting, which is much like finding your dad has managed to get Helen Mirren to come to your dinner party and she agrees to give a performance as the Queen only for your teenage daughter to storm out on the basis that it only serves to reinforce colonial narratives. Many aristocrats lamented that the new generation went to church regularly, refused to attend theatres or even balls, evangelised their siblings and displayed strange sentimentality around the deathbed. Some clergymen 
emboldened by the growing tide of religion in the 1830s and 40s, grew increasingly evangelical and attempted to correct the aristocracy as they saw it. One wrote to the fifth Earl Fitzwilliam to condemn the Earl for holding balls that had had dancing. The Earl replied that he had read the Bible twice in the original Greek and couldn't find anywhere that Jesus had a problem with dancing. So, thank you. We'll take that under advisement. Get stuffed. Don't write again. Queen V still loved a ball, and the aristocracy relied on them to get their children introduced and married off to each other. Clubs like Almax, highly exclusive, membership strictly limited to 600 or 700, by invitation only, at the nod of the high society ladies who ran it. These were the great marriage market venues of higher society, but also centres of patronage and power. Even lofty title was not enough to guarantee membership. The world of the fashionable club was essential for the Victorian London aristocracy. Memberships highly sought after, and standards of food sometimes remarkably low. Away from the world of title, it quickly got a lot harder. Classes were hard to define and intermixed a lot. Sir Robert Peel was a knight and a prime minister, and good friend of Prince Albert, yet he was painfully aware of his perceived humble origins, leading to early conflict with Queen Victoria. See, even becoming the literal prime minister, talking to the queen, and being friends with Prince Albert, as well as getting a knighthood, wasn't necessarily enough to make someone escape the middle class. There were also what we might call the upper class honorary servant class. These were the very well-bred people who took positions in service of the royal household. To quote the excellent book Serving Victoria, these were people like Sarah Lytton, Lady of the Bedchamber, then Superintendent of the Royal Nursery, Charlotte Canning, Lady of the Bedchamber, Mary Ponsonby, Maid of Honour, Harry Ponsonby, Private Secretary, Randall Davidson, Domestic Chaplain, and James Reed, Doctor. End quote. Lady Sarah Spencer was born at the Spencer seat of Oldthorpe in Northamptonshire on the 29th of July 1787 and was the eldest daughter of the Whig politician Sir George Spencer, 2nd Earl Spencer, and Lady Lavinia Bingham Sarah Spencer. She married Sir William Henry Lytton in March 1813 after an engagement of two months. He succeeded his half-brother to the barony of Littleton and became the third baron Littleton. The position, Lady of the Bedchamber, was an official position and traditionally went to the wife of a peer, should she choose to serve. But service of the nobility at court was very much seen as an honour and a duty, not to be confused with servants from the working class. Oh, and in case you are wondering, yes, she is related to Diana Spencer, Princess of Wales. Despite what many people assume, Diana was an aristocrat from one of the greatest aristocratic houses of England, which dated back to the 15th century. She was referred to as a commoner when she married Prince Charles, simply because she hadn't inherited her aristocratic title at the time, and in comparison to royalty, she was common. She wasn't Princess of Monaco, for example. You can see how confusing the world and status of the aristocracy was. Being in service at court brought prestige, but lots of pressure and a surprising amount of boredom. Victoria and Albert didn't run a drinking, partying and hunting court where beautiful young things could charm their way up the social ladder. Although I suppose it's better than Henry VIII because that sometimes had fatal results. Albert liked order and disliked parties and late nights. Service meant standing around quietly for hours, trying not to look bored, or entertaining the Queen politely over embroidery and tea. The royal couple valued discretion and loyalty. If that was given, and Victoria liked you, then she gave almost absolute loyalty back, to the point of willful blindness to faults. Unlike in continental Europe, it wasn't a great route to political power, 
and the really ambitious tended to avoid court and try colonial service, the army, politics or law. Yet there was so much social intermingling. The rural estates of the gentry and country squires still held fates, hunts, music, parties in the grounds and mixing with the crowds at bare-knuckle boxing matches or races. Local magistrates were frequently drawn from the gentry but would be on good terms with the local doctor or priest. Rich farmers' daughters might mingle with down-on-their-luck sons of the gentry. Maybe a half-pay lieutenant was a good prospect if his father was a baronet. A rich mill owner might find himself becoming a powerful local figure able to force his way into the upper ranks of the middle class. Middle class are interesting because there was such a vast outpouring of art and literature from them. At the very top were men who were barely distinguishable from the upper class and attended institutions with them. The Athenian Club was founded by aristocrats and largely run by them. According to the Handbook of London, 1850, the principles of the club were, quote, for the association of individuals known for their literary or scientific attainments, artists of eminence in any class of the fine arts, and noblemen and gentlemen distinguished as liberal patrons of science, literature, and the arts. The members are chosen by ballot, except that the committee have the power of electing yearly, from the list of candidates for admission, a limited number of persons who shall have attained to the distinguished eminence of science, literature, the arts, or for public services. Naturally, both Charles Dickens and Charles Darwin were members. Michael Faraday was briefly involved, and men of eminence, including members of the Royal Society, crossed over to enjoy the truly splendid library. I would dearly love to see the libraries, but alas, I haven't published a suitably notable paper on geology or beetles. The bulk of the middle class made up the professions, the clerks, the civil service. They often helped administer imperial territories, run the merchant fleets, fill the middle ranks of the navy, the church and the military. Often referred to as the middling sort or respectable, as Dickens said in Sketches by Boz, quote, the wish of persons in the humbler classes of life to ape the manners and customs of those whom fortune has placed above them is often the subject of remark and not unfrequently of complaint. The inclination may and no doubt does, exist to a great extent among the small gentility, the would-be autocrats of the middle classes, tradesmen and clerks, with fashionable novel-reading families and circulating library-subscribing daughters, set up small assemblies in humble imitations of Almacks and promenade the dingy large room of some second-rate hotel with as much complacency as the enviable you are privileged to exhibit their magnificence in that exclusive haunt of fashion. End quote. He is, being characteristically observant and somewhat unkind, many of these people were simply hard-working and wanting to make themselves not only better, but accepted for doing so. Bear in mind, Dickens came from the lower middle class, went through crushing poverty, escaped through journalism and writing, and then into the giddy heights of superstar celebrity. When he mentions fashionable novels, they might include his own. So it is likely he is slightly mocking those who mock. He was clearly alive to social justice and the problem of people of talent being trapped. As is said well in Nicholas Nickleby, quote, May not the complaint that common people are above their station often take its rise in the fact of uncommon being below theirs, end quote. After all, even today, classist Britain is replete with sayings like mustn't get above themselves, stay humble, don't blow your own trumpet, mustn't grumble. All sayings to keep people in their place. Artists, painters, cartoonists, illustrators and other creatives are also difficult to place. They should be firmly working class. But given the expense of paints, canvas, models, 
studios and much more, then the struggle to sell and be exhibited, the vocation attracted a range of classes, from the top of the aristocrats to the very nearly destitute street sketcher. The working class was hugely diverse. At the top were the highly skilled tradesmen, blacksmiths, coopers, hatmakers, master butchers. Unlike the unskilled labour, they could easily switch jobs and they received high wages. Hatmaker Frederick Willis said, quote, Skilled workers with seven years' apprenticeships to their credit were formed as the aristocracy of labour. They were more assured and confident than the unskilled worker with good reason. End quote. Some of these skilled workers could earn more than their supposedly better middle class clerks and were often respected figures in the local community of rural towns, especially if they owned a shop or a business. They were often surprisingly aspirational. Many were chartists or local musicians, abolitionists or temperance movement champions, or members of trade guilds or local mayors and aldermen. One very notable example is Eliza Cook. Her father was a tin and brazier maker. She was a noted working-class poet and activist. Her language is surprisingly modern on the subject of how to improve the situation of the working class. Quote, The levelling of this day is all of the levelling up character. The number of self-risen men sprung up from the ranks is increasing and must increase. They are growing up to the highest standards, and the mass too is advancing with education and knowledge, and they too must gradually become levelled up. Quote. She emphasised that education early prevented people growing up into criminals later. Her poetry overlaps with Chartism and was part of an explosion of a truly vibrant upper working class culture. English history is especially prone to be written with the assumption that culture comes from the top down, with the classes below adopting fashions and views trickling down from above. That is bluntly wrong. Victorian Britain saw a huge growth of culture across all the classes, with elements being adopted by all. Eliza describes it really well in one of her verses set to a hymnal metre. Quote, Who scorns the common sculpture art that poor men's pence can buy, that silently invokes our soul to lift itself on high? Who shall revile the common tunes that haunt us as we go? Who shall despise the common bloom that scents the markets row? Oh, let us bless the beautiful that ever lives and greets and cheers us in the music and flowers of the streets. End quote. Indeed, the Victorian street would often be awash with life, from flower sellers to colourful market stalls, to Italian organ grinders, to lofty gentlemen, bright trousers and coats with loftier hats, to swarms of street sellers and advertisers. Just below the skilled working class were the professional servants. It's easy to assume that people were forced into service, or that service was the kind you see in the great houses like Downton Abbey on television, yet it was varied and sometimes a highly desirable career. A young girl of 12 might be taken on as the sole servant by a lower middle class family, allowing her to get a bed, some food and some saved wages to send home to help her parents. If she got good references, she might advance, eventually run a household of servants and marry well. Clothing was often provided. The great estates needed a lot more staff. Take Bewley in the 1860s. Famous today for housing the National Motor Museum with centuries of history and stunning grounds. Despite being in the south of England, it was inherited by Scottish nobility. According to the current Lord Montague, quote, My great-grandfather, the 5th Duke of Buckleigh, held many posts, including ADC to Queen Victoria, and was a leading figure of his day. It was he who gave the Bewley estate to my grandfather as a wedding present. His son Henry, my grandfather, and first Lord Montague of Bewley was indeed the very model of a Victorian landowner. He lived a quiet life on the essay of the estate and was a substantial local figure. 
being MP for South Hampshire and subsequently the New Forest. As a young man of 20, he had travelled the world and developed a natural talent for watercolours. End quote. The first Lord Montague was in fact an old Etonian Conservative MP and created a peer, the first Baron Montague, and he married the daughter of a Baron, the Honourable Cecilia Susan Montague Stark Wortley. Yet, whilst Lord Montague lived his privileged life, including painting the Temple of Karnak in Egypt, he was supported by a valet, butler, coachman, gamekeeper, head gardener, undergardener, stable boy, housekeeper, nanny, lady's maid, housemaid, laundry maid, cook, undercook, two scullery maids, a dairy maid, three footmen, a groom, and a stable boy. That's around 22 members of staff. Their kitchen and laundry staff might never be allowed to venture above stairs. They stayed below stairs on the servant levels. Imagine being so privileged you can keep working people away from you at separate entrances and just summon you need with a bell. You can see why the Chartists, Socialists, Evangelical Reformers and Proto-Marxists were driven to incoherent rage by the British class system. No amount of hard work, effort, cleverness, inventiveness, bravery or anything else would get someone to this position. Being a servant in a great house meant a roof, bed, food, clothing and actually good status but it also meant seeing the gentry up close and yet never having the same freedoms. As one footman said, quote, the life of a gentleman's servant is like that of a bird shut up in a cage. The bird is well housed and fed, but is deprived of liberty. And liberty is the dearest object of all Englishmen. In London, men's servants has to sleep downstairs underground, which is generally very damp. Many men lose theirs by it, or otherwise come up with rheumatics. One might see fine, blooming young men come up from the country to take services, but after they have been in London one year, all the bloom is lost, and a pale, sickly, yellow complexion takes its stead. There is money to be made in service, but the person must be lucky enough to get in a good places, and being service when very young. I was very much old when I began service, therefore I shall never be worth a jot. End quote. As I've mentioned before, women in Victorian service suffered from sexual discrimination and sexual harassment, plus were frequently thrown out if they became pregnant by another staff member, or worse, a male in the employer's family. Society viewed it as a sign of the inevitable low morals of women in service, and as Mayhew noted, many women in vague junior service positions were seen as prostitutes in waiting. Balanced against this, many household management books, like Mrs. Beaton's, emphasised that an employer had a duty to treat servants well. They also reminded employers that they got what they paid for, and if they paid poorly, they would get served poorly. Good pay and conditions reflected well on the household, and therefore were more likely to result in happy, well-performing servants raising the status of the overall household in the eyes of everyone. Below the servants came the poor labourers, like the porter, the sweep, the factory hand, and of course, the ubiquitous costermonger. They were the backbone of the city, selling goods from a cart or the back of a barrow. You name it, he'd sell it to you at a price that was practically cutting his own throat. Get your oysters, hot eels! Pea soup, fried fish, pies and puddings, sheep's trotters and pickled whelks, gingerbread and baked potatoes, crumpets, cough drops, street ices and ginger beer, cocoa and peppermint water, as well as clothes, second-hand musical instruments, books, live birds, all at a low price. Or an even lower price, if you didn't ask where it came from. Some specialised in buying waste products such as broken metal, bottles, bones and kitchen items such as dripping, broken candles and old silver spoons. Also popular were the coffee sellers near the factory gate 
For the woman in need of extra to feed the family, there were flowers to sell, petticoats to mend, matches to make, or a two-penny upright behind the pub. Every day in London would start with a rush for the workers. As journalist Henry Mayhew noted, coffee was essential. Quote, Others, whilst on their way to work, are gathered at the corner of some street round the early breakfast stall and blowing saucers of steaming coffee drawn from tall tin cans that have the red-hot charcoal shining crimson through the holes in the firepan beneath. End quote. That's a long way from fine tea in nice cups. This was a rough brew to get a hard day started. Many of those in DOS houses or lodgings might not have access to a kitchen to brew drinks, so the street vendors were crucial. German travel writer Max Schlesinger described the scene at daybreak. Quote, Slowly and with a hollow rumbling sound do the sweeping machines travel down the street in files of twos and threes to take off every particle of dust and offal. The market gardeners' carts and wagons come next. They proceed at a brisk trot to arrive in time for the early purchases. After them, the coal wagons and brewers' drays, which only at certain hours are permitted to unload in the principal streets of the city. At the same time, the light two-wheeled carts of the butchers, fishmongers and hotel keepers rattle along at a slapping pace. For their owners, sharp men of business, would be the first in the market to choose the best and purchase at low prices. Here and there, a trapdoor is opened in the pavement and dirty men ascend from the regions below. They are the workmen to whose care is committed the city underground, which they build, repair and keep in good order. End quote. We might also remember our good old friends, the railway navvies and engineers. Now we reach the very bottom. The desperate poor, the workhouse, the beggars, the criminals, the older street prostitutes, the disabled poor, the circus performer, the itinerant peddler, the gypsies. Men with sandwich boards were a common sight in London, desperately hoping for a few pennies for bread and gin. Mayhew again describes the start of the desperation of trying to live another day. Quote, then come sauntering out the unwashed poor some with greasy wallets on their backs, to hunt over each dust heap and eke out life by seeking refuse bones or stray rags and pieces of old iron. The depths of poverty in Victorian England far exceeded almost anything you would come across today outside of the giant rubbish heaps of Manila or the worst parts of Chinese labour camps or the desperate favelas. We sometimes get the image the Victorians lived in luxury and other poor people around the world were exploited by them. There was exploitation, and there's plenty of that I'm going to talk to you about. But the reality was that the vast majority of the Victorian British were at best working frantically every day on a knife edge between poverty and utter ruin. And a huge number were digging for old bones in rubbish heaps to eat. The whole world of the 19th century was much, much poorer than we immediately think and the middle and upper classes were determined not to risk sinking into poverty no matter what. Even the prostitutes had their own class distinctions. The aristocratic courtesan would be furious to be equated to a mere gentleman's mistress who in turn was a long way above the girls in the brothels. The fancy girl from Germany or France, or the fortune-seeking country girl or shop girl, would parade in Haymarket in her silk ribbon dress and attract a decent client. She would be young, pretty, and command a good price, tax-free. Below her came the plainer shop girls or the children of the lower working class, sometimes very young, only 12 or 13, desperate to eke out the family's poverty wages, able to attract only poor clients and frequently stealing or running cons. Still, these unfortunate girls were a long way from the gin-drinking destitute plying her trade in the rough pubs or the docks. Sitting uncomfortably outside the class system were the foreigners, who were assigned a station, depending on assumed class, 
and how the xenophobic press of the day was feeling about France or Germany. A foreign aristocrat was assumed as far above the common masses as an English aristocrat might. Queen Victoria notoriously adored the Indian aristocracy to the point where she caused annoyance in the British establishment for defending bad behaviours that would not be tolerated even amongst the aristocracy in England. Because of her position at the top, Victoria could be surprisingly lacking in snobbery as she was beyond it. As queen and empress of the largest empire in history, she was supremely secure in herself. So was happy to reprimand Lord Salisbury for being racist. She seamlessly overindulged Sir Partrap Singh, Maharaja of Idur, and Regent of Jodhpur. She paid for his portrait to be painted, and he returned the favour by swearing his life goal was to die in a cavalry charge whilst carrying her picture. As he was from the Rajput class, and they were part of the warrior class in India, he was ideally placed to make these statements. With his role as Lancelot fully realised, Queen V was entirely taken. She loved a courtly medieval romance and statements like this were the kind of flattery that Disraeli laid on with a shovel. The prince also invented the Jodhpurs, based on his riding experience, to improve the polo playing experience for his polo team. They were a huge hit, as were his polo team. He was both Indian, but also entirely upper class to British eyes. He was a lieutenant general in the British Indian Army, and served in the Second Afghan War, the Tira Campaign, the Boxer Rebellion, and the First World War. In 1898, he was awarded the insignia of Honorary Knight Commander of the Order of the Bath, KCB. Despite being foreign and of an entirely different race, there was no question that he was considered of the highest social rank and entitled to deference. In the unlikely event, he met a working-class person who wasn't in the ranks or in service, he would expect them to metaphorically tug their forelock. Sadly, he wasn't all fun and polo playing Sir Lancelot. He said he had one other great ambition in his life, which was to wipe out the entire Muslim population of India, whom loathed. When it was pointed out to him by mutual acquaintance that they had a number of Muslim friends, he replied, quote, Yes, I am liking them very much too, but liking them very much better dead. End quote. At the risk of doing some pop psychology, Victoria had an almost maternal view of her imperial subjects, especially the Indian ones, which grew greater as she got older. It might be easy to scoff, but after her terrible childhood and her difficulties with her own children, it could be that distant fantasy figures were easier to mother. Who knows? Nor should the impact of India on the class system be underestimated. The vast flow of people, goods, trade, wealth, loot and ideas in both directions meant that understanding Victorian Britain means understanding Victorian India. The Anglo-Indian community had grown since the time of Clive in the 18th century and now the Admiral, the Imperial Administration began to produce a dazzling array of new positions, titles and people moving up the class hierarchy. Governors, viceroys, proconsuls, all the trappings of imperial Rome began to appear with the first two decades of Victoria's reign, seeing some of the greatest imperial expansion across the subcontinent. Below them, soldiers, merchants, doctors, engineers, spies, mercenaries and adventurers all stood a chance to make a fortune take it back to Britain. Note I say Britain as I constantly remind you the empire was an English, Scottish, Welsh and Irish enterprise and all of the nations had their class systems shaken by imperial expansion and their economies all saw money coming in to the great estates and the gentry. The upper class faced an influx of newcomers. Why, a tall handsome fellow with lancer whiskers and a talent for looking active and heroic whilst avoiding real danger 
could rise to the heights of society, perhaps quivering unworthily whilst he does so. Middle-class, well-dressed travellers who paid their way were frequently welcome, or at least the objects of curiosity. The gutter press could be extremely xenophobic, of course. They were bluntly racist against Prince Albert, for example, and the French were frequently reviled in the popular press. Despite that, French culture was frequently admired. The British middle and upper classes willingly followed French fashions, art, literature, food and music. There was also the view that France in general, and French politicians in particular, were extremely warlike and aggressive for any kind of good reason, with bouts of populism inspiring random military adventures. Of course, the French might have fired back similar charges, but overall, there was a large two-way flow of cultural ideas between France and Britain. Things got very tricky when it came to minority groups like Jews, Gypsies and Black people. One critical problem was that Victorian concepts of Britishness were closely linked to Christianity and perceived civilization. Jewish people were seen clearly as white and civilized, but their historical position in Christian Europe kept them as outsiders. Some, like Disraeli, prospered. Others were mocked or had to put up with terrible anti-Semitism. Broadly speaking, there were only around 20 to 30,000 Jewish people in the United Kingdom in the early 19th century, and many were involved in either finance or forced into selling old clothes. I covered some of this in a lot of depth in a patrons-only episode or two on Oliver Twist, Fagin and Bill Sykes, if you are interested. For black people, life could be varied. Many were in part of historical communities stretching back to Tudor times, in London or the other ports, and many had manual labour jobs. Mayhew noted that they were generally held to be hard-working, reliable, and with historic ties to the country, but sometimes struggled to get work. Mayhew did find one witness who stated his brother had become a top-level servant with a fine uniform, and despite them both being black British natives, the successful servant brother considered himself far above his hapless, less employed brother, and wouldn't talk to him. Beggars from this community were often nicknamed St Giles Blackbirds. This community was not to be confused with recent immigrants from the United States of America, who were often considered a nuisance, either as noisy and or fake abolitionists or evangelists, or as fake beggars. As Mayhew says, quote, The Negro mendicant, who is usually an American Negro, relies on the abject misery and downtrodden despair of his appearance, and generally represents himself as a fugitive slave. At the time that the suppression of the slave trade created so much excitement, this was an excellent dodge. The idea that Britain had systemic structural racist issues didn't seem to occur to her. The gulf between the classes could seem vast, with huge variety in entertainment, occupations, manners, dress and food. The upper middle class scientist, frequenting the Athenium and the Royal Society, with a good inheritance and money from his books, was unlikely to ever cross paths with Bill the sandwich board painter. Rich and poor inhabited different worlds, even a few streets apart. But there was sometimes an equally vast gulf between people within the classes. The smart London barrister was a very different person to the vicar in a small Yorkshire town. They might both agree the other was respectable and to be shown courtesy, but in practical terms, one would probably be rich and enjoying cosmopolitan life, whilst the other would be poor and perhaps bored. In the big cities, you would need a good eye for detail, sometimes though to tell class at first glance. Whilst working men were easy to spot with their rough waistcoats, slightly dirty shirts and neckties, you would soon notice that most of the women wore bonnets and the streets were full of bright dresses, coloured trousers, gloves, hats and stockings. In the 1840s, as I've said before, clothes were colourful and you would also throw in police uniforms, soldiers, liveried footmen, post office workers and much more. The sweater was only worn by fishermen and many people 
would be wearing their better clothes than they could afford since they bought them second hand from their social betters and then tailored them to fit you would have to know the materials cuts and behaviors of the classes a time traveler mistaking a well-dressed shop woman for a lady would cause great embarrassment many an officer would wear his best military uniform to turn a lady's eye or to secretly save himself some money whilst he sought a cheaper posting overseas. Country visitors were easily recognised in London, often wearing the fashions of a few years before, or regional clothing. This made identifying their class even trickier. The tension between the North and the South was in part economic and part about class. They almost viewed each other as two separate nations, and in some ways still do. Many Victorian novels and travel writers highlighted the differences. One of the best Victorian novels is North and South by Elizabeth Gaskill. In it, a slightly impoverished vicar's daughter, Margaret Hale, moves to Yorkshire and meets an up-and-coming mill owner, John Thornton. The novel is mostly one of them failing to realise the other one is also in love with them. It is an incredibly well-written and well-observed work. Margaret's father is so hard up that he starts privately tutoring Thornton. You can immediately see class mobility in action. The vicar and Margaret both regard themselves as better than the people of the industrial town they end up in. Thornton is conscious that he is uneducated compared to the gentility, and he is hurt by the apparent snobbery, borderline nastiness of Margaret. Thornton, in particular, is an extremely attractive literary figure. He has the idealised Victorian virtues, but he clearly looks for a woman who is his equal in intelligence, passion, much more. He refuses to take advantage of women or his workers, even when he is hard on them. He is clever, ambitious, honest, and wants to be a better person, and often goes out of his way to make kind gestures, even when he is looked down on it for it. Moreover, he grows with Margaret's help and recognises the commonality he has as a human being with one of his workers, a man with whom Margaret has formed an unlikely friendship. Overall, the novel shows how dynamic and changing Victorian class could be, how intensely personal. It was a hugely popular novel, and also a vicious attack on poverty, industrialization, and inequality. Thornton, the hard businessman and mill owner, comes to recognise that business is a cooperation between management, owner and labour, saying, quote, New forms of negotiation between management and labour are part of modern life. Its themes are almost timeless, and I highly recommend it to you. If you don't fancy the book, try to find the four-part BBC TV series from 2004. It is one of the best historical period dramas, well, maybe next to I, Claudius. The movement to the cities and urban growth wrenched many thousands away from their traditional patterns. It was easy to know the local squire and magistrate were upper middle class, clearly one of the gentry. What about one of the new men in town? Where did Charles Dickens fit? He started out in a reasonable, respectable, but very modest circumstances. A constant set of poor decisions by his father reduced him to labelling bottles and then the workhouse. Later, he became a very rare new thing, an international celebrity writer. There had been famous writers before, and there had been highly regarded writers, but Dickens was one of the first real literary superstars. Packed halls, sell-out book runs, desperate fans, lecture tours, visits to anyone and everyone who mattered. Everyone wanted a piece of him. Could the loftiest earl snub him, condescend and insult him? What about Darwin or Gladstone? Neither were aristocrats at first, but they clearly had enormous influence. A person who sat slightly outside their normal station in the class system was difficult for the Victorians to deal with. As historian Bonnie G. Smith said about governesses, quote, the governess in the 19th century personified a life of intense misery. She was also that most unfortunate individual, the single, 
middle-class woman who had to earn her own living. Although being a governess might be a degradation, employing one was a sign of culture and means. The psychological situation of the governess made her position unenviable. Her presence created practical difficulties within the Victorian home because she was neither a servant nor a member of the family. She was from the social level of the family, but the fact that she was paid a salary put her at the economic level of the servants. Quote. So, when you watch TV and see a Victorian governess, remember she was a conflicted figure, one who had failed to marry, was not rich enough to be idle gentility, yet too well born to be working class and employed in many roles. She brought status to her employer, but she was in the uneasy position of being too well born to be treated as a servant and too employed to be treated as an equal. The sense of change, often called progress by many Victorians, was frequently noted in literature, that somehow the old certainties and ties were changing very rapidly. Change can often cause people to look back to the old certainties as much as forward to new opportunities. Travel writer Edwin Waugh, visiting Lancashire, noted the enormity of the change and its effect on the old social structure. I'm going to give you a long quote from him because it has that wonderfully overblown writing about it that I love from the Victorians. Imagine this from an easy-to-read travel guide. Quote, The history of Lancashire passed in review before me, especially its latest history. I saw the country that was once thick with trees, that canopied herds of wild animals and thinnest of people, now barest of trees and thickest of population. The land, which was of least account of any in the kingdom in the last century, now most sought after, and those rude elements were looked upon as the riddlings of creation more productive of riches than all the Sacramento's gold fields, and ministers to a spirit which is destined to change the social aspect of Britain. I saw the spade sinking in the old hunting grounds, and old parks now trampled by the fast-increasing press of new feet. The hard, cold soil is now made to grow food for man and beast. Masses of stone and flag shaken from their sleep in the beds of the hills, and dragged forth to build mills and houses with. Cloth is woven for the world, and the world buys it and wears it. Commerce shoots up from a poor peddler with his pack on a mule to a giant merchant stepping from continent to continent over the ocean to make his bargains. Railways are invented, and the land is ribbed with iron for iron messengers to run on through mountains and over valleys, on business commissions. The very lightning turns errand boy. A great fusion of thought and sentimentality springs up, and old England is in hysterics about its ancient opinions. A new aristocracy rises from the prudent, persevering working people of the district, and threatens to push the old one from its stool. What is to be the upshot of all of it? The senses are stunned by the din of toil, and the view obscured by the dust of bargain-making. But, through an opening in the clouds, hope's stars are shining still in the blue heaven that overspans us. Take heart, ye toiling millions. The spirits of our heroic forefathers are watching to see what sort of England you leave to your sons. End quote. I don't know about you, but that's a lot more oomph to it than a lot of modern political speeches. That change was starting to be noticed in the 80s. I hope this episode has helped you see how complex Victorian class was and that it was actually a time of change, one that would in many ways be increasingly radical. It was an age where people were leaving old traditions and creating a new social system to deal with these changes. Now that we have covered some of the big social themes of sex, gender and class, plus Victoria's early days of marriage, the podcast is going to shift focus a little bit. The 1840s were a hugely important decade. We have a ton to cover and I've got some overdue bits to do. I have a little bonus coming for you soon 
and I'll do a recap style mini-sode too. Then we will get cracking with our next series, one of the biggest history quakes ever. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Via podcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria Podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.